If you're a conservative and you love Donald Trump, okay, you're in the anti-science crowd, no problem. Just own up to it. You don't want science published because you're afraid of facts, and so you're part of the party of ignorance. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Neil deGrasse Tyson, Science Versus, Quirks and Quarks, Science for the People, Who, What, Why, and The Young Turks. How did America rise up from a backwoods country to be one of the greatest nations the world has ever known? We pioneered industries. And all of this required the greatest innovations in science and technology in the world. And so, science is a fundamental part of the country that we are. But in this, the 21st century, when it comes time to make decisions about science, it seems to me people have lost the ability to judge what is true and what is not. What is reliable, what is not reliable. What should you believe, what should you not believe. And when you have people who don't know much about science, standing in denial of it and rising to power, that is a recipe for the complete dismantling of our informed democracy. Let us demand that educators around America teach evolution not as fact, but as theory. An increasing number of parents showing skepticism about vaccinations. Voters have approved a ban on GMOs. Let's call climate change unproven science. That's not the country I remember growing up in. Not that we didn't have challenges. I'm old enough to remember the 60s and the 70s. We had a hot war and a cold war, civil rights movement, and all of this was going on. But I don't remember any time where people were standing in denial of what science was. One of the great things about science is that it is an entire exercise in finding what is true. You have a hypothesis, you test it, I get a result. A rival of mine double checks it because they think I might be wrong. They perform an even better experiment than I did and they find out, hey, this experiment matches. Oh my gosh, we're onto something here. And out of this rises a new emergent truth does it better than anything else we have ever come up with as human beings. This is science. It's not something to toy with. It's not something to say, I choose not to believe e equals mc squared. You don't have that option. When you have an established scientific emergent truth, it is true whether or not you believe in it. And the sooner you understand that, the faster we can get on with the political conversations about how to solve the problems that face us. 
So once you understand that humans are warming the planet, you can then have a political conversation about that. You can say, well, should we, are there carbon credits? Do we do this? Do we put a tariff on, do we fund, do we subsidize? Those, those have political answers. And every minute one is in denial, you are delaying the political solution that should have been established years ago. As a voter, as a citizen, scientific issues will come before you. And isn't it worth it to say, all right, let me at least become scientifically literate so that I can think about these issues and act intelligently upon them. Recognize what science is and allow it to be what it can and should be in the service of civilization. It's in our hands. We're starting our story of climate change in the 1950s when Ralph Keeling was just a kid and he used to go visit his father in his lab and Ralph still remembers what it looked like. Had all these uh, glass tubes and pumps whirring and uh, there was a cartoon on television called Felix the Cat who had this sort of mad scientist guy, Poindexter, who also had glassware that would occasionally blow up on him. My exposure to science consisted of that cartoon on television in my father's lab, and they were very concordant. <laughs> Let's go to the laboratory. <laughs> now, while Felix the cat was running in the background, the elder Keeling was working on this experiment that had nothing to do with climate science at first. Ralph's father was researching rocks, but for that project, he had to know how much carbon dioxide was in the air. And this was a problem, because at the time, there was no way to precisely measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So he had to invent something. And he did. A machine. Those were the noisy pumps that Ralph remembers. And this machine was a breakthrough because before that, we could only get really rough estimates of how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere. But Ralph's dad's machine, it was the first that could very precisely measure how much CO2 was in the air. It could measure carbon dioxide down to parts per million. What is parts per million? What does that actually mean? So, yeah, if you have a... um a million molecules of air, it means that out of those million, 315 are carbon dioxide molecules. It's a tiny percentage. Uh, Well, it's, yeah, it's small, but sometimes things that are in small abundance matter. And Ralph's dad, David, was just about to find out how important small things could be. In 1958, David's first measurement showed that there were around 313 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But he soon noticed that CO2 levels were creeping up. And up. And up. 
1969, a decade after he first started tracking it, he noted that carbon dioxide was up by eight parts per million. David knew this was no anomaly. He later described it as unmistakable. And this was because he wasn't just going on one measurement. He helped set up instruments in other sites around the world, in Hawaii, Alaska, New Zealand, the South Pole, and even over the Pacific Ocean. Some pilots were recruited to capture air samples during Air Force recon flights. By the mid-1970s, the fact that carbon dioxide was going up was a scientific certainty. But that doesn't mean it felt like a big deal. Some of David's colleagues even thought that he should stop measuring it. I think a lot of his colleagues thought, oh, you're nuts to keep that going. But David, he did keep going. He didn't know exactly what the increasing numbers would mean for the world, but he felt that the change he was seeing was important and something worth keeping track of. And so he realised that his, his work had a different kind of importance because if he abandoned it, humanity would not know what was happening right now and that ought to matter. And then, in the late 1970s, scientists noticed another change. Teams all around the world saw that the average global surface temperature was rising too. Temperatures in the 1970s were about half a degree Celsius, or 0.9 Fahrenheit, warmer than almost 100 years before. And so, to explain it, scientists, including David Keeling, dug up this 100-year-old theory. You see, in the late 1800s, a Swedish chemist named Svante Arrhenius had come up with this idea that rising carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere can warm the planet. He knew that carbon dioxide could absorb heat from the sun. So he calculated that if we had more and more carbon dioxide, say by burning fossil fuels, it would absorb more and more heat, ultimately trapping heat inside the Earth's atmosphere and acting kind of like a blanket over our planet. But while a few scientists had pursued that theory back at the turn of the century, it hadn't really taken off. And that was pretty much because no one could measure carbon dioxide precisely enough to recognise the changes that were happening. That was until David Keeling invented that machine. But once David's data was out there... Then his colleagues started thinking. Take this theory that Svante had, combine it with David's undeniable findings, and it was possible to explain why the world was getting warmer. Because of carbon. But there wasn't scientific consensus. In fact, a big National Academy of Sciences report written in 1983 said that while carbon dioxide was a compelling theory as to explain why the world might be warming... It was not yet confirmed as the culprit. Why? Because there were other suspects around. So, what were those other suspects? One of them was pretty explosive. Volcanoes. Some scientists thought that perhaps there hadn't been as many volcanic eruptions recently. Volcanic eruptions inject a whole bunch of junk into the stratosphere, ash, dust and sulphur dioxide. And this stuff reflects sunlight away from the Earth. 
It can, in fact, cool parts of the world down. In the 18th century, a volcano erupted in northern Europe for eight months, leaving the northern hemisphere about one degree Celsius colder than usual. So, some of those scientists noticing warming in the 1970s thought maybe fewer volcanoes were erupting and that was warming the world. To test this out, scientists looked through historical data and found that in the second half of the century, there actually were a bunch of eruptions in Mexico, the Philippines, and even more recently, in 2010, a volcano in Iceland spewed ash into the air for more than five weeks. Do you remember this one? It caused havoc to air traffic, as well as reporters who couldn't pronounce it. The glacier is called Ayafetla Yogurt. Ayafetla Yogurt. Just think of, hey, you forgot your yogurt. No, I've got it, I've got it. So in 2010, the Ayafetla Volcano spewed ash and dust in the air like other volcanoes recently. So, the number of eruptions hadn't changed on average, but the temperature of the world kept going up. So, scientists moved on. Some tried to find other explanations, pinning it on changes in how the Earth spins around the sun. Because the Earth can orbit just a touch closer or further away from the sun, sending our climate into a flux. Or perhaps it was changes in the sun's activity that was explaining this change in temperature. But the sun tends to power up and down in 11-year cycles, and the Earth's orbit changes over hundreds of thousands of years. They just didn't line up with the trends that scientists were seeing. So these were all ruled out too. Really, the big thing they kept turning back to was what that Swedish guy had said more than 100 years ago, that carbon dioxide was trapping heat from the sun and warming the world. And Ralph Keeling reckons that it's kind of incredible that this theoretical prediction from 100 years ago lines up with what we're actually seeing today. It's a triumph of science. It doesn't feel like a triumph for humanity, but it was a triumph for science. Back in Ralph's office, he showed me all the measurements that he and his dad have made. So you're looking at carbon dioxide starting in 1950. Almost 60 years of samples. And it's a graph with one line going up. And it's now called the Keeling Curve. 315 parts per million, and they rise up to the right to something around 405 parts per million. 405 parts per million. So that's up 92 parts per million from when the Keelings first started measuring CO2. And when it comes to warming, the last three decades have each successively been the warmest decade at the Earth's surface since 1850. Okay, so thanks to the Keelings' work, we know that carbon dioxide is rising. We know that it's warming the world. But those facts alone don't mean that humans are responsible. So, how did science reach that conclusion? The thing is that carbon dioxide doesn't just come from burning fossil fuels. It's all around us. It's in the atmosphere. Humans breathe it out and plants absorb it when they grow. The oceans soak up and release carbon dioxide. In many ways, the planet is kind of constantly breathing in and out carbon dioxide. But 
carbon dioxide is also pumped out when we burn fossil fuels like coal, oil and natural gas. So, to find out whether more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was from the planet breathing or fossil fuels or something else, we have to investigate the carbon dioxide measurements that the Keelings and others have made. And this is something that Chris Field, a professor of environmental studies and director of the Stanford Woods Institute in California, told us all about. And the scientists kind of act like detectives. They use a variety of techniques, like on CSI. When was the last time you watched CSI? (laughs) I don't know, is CSI even still on? (laughs) He's probably more into The Good Wife. And Chris has been studying the secrets of carbon dioxide for decades. And so how can we track what is carbon dioxide that's being farted out of trees and animals and what is carbon dioxide that's coming from fossil fuels? It's really pretty easy. And I need to do a little mini chemistry lesson to help make this clear. But Wowie. there are, you can think about several flavors of carbon dioxide. Chris basically tells us that there are different types of carbon out there. And this may sound surprising, but there's carbon that's not radioactive, and carbon that is radioactive. (laughs) Radioactive carbon disappears over a very, very long period of time. Now, anything on the Earth's surface with carbon in it has both kinds of carbon. It's got the radioactive kind and the non-radioactive kind. So, yes, You and me, we're all a little bit radioactive. And so are all the plants and the animals that you see around you. But there's something that doesn't have radioactive carbon in it. And that's fossil fuels. Why? Because fossil fuels are made of dead animals and plants that have been buried for millions of years. And during that time, all of the radioactive carbon inside of them slowly disappears. After millions of years, it's gone. Completely. So, when we burn oil and gas and coal today, they don't have any radioactive carbon left in them. Just that other kind of carbon. So when scientists like Ralph measure samples of air, they find lots of carbon that doesn't have any radioactivity, meaning it's carbon that's been smushed beneath the Earth's surface for millions of years. Of the human-released CO2, because it doesn't have any of this radioactivity. When Keeling started his measurements, we could tell really, really clearly, and we'd see the signal... And that's how scientists know whether carbon in the air is from burning fossil fuels or from the planet breathing. And that signal is really very, very clear. Using these measurements and other studies, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, announced in 2014 that there was enough evidence to say that it was extremely likely that the burning of fossil fuels was the main cause of climate change in the mid-20th century. And by the way, they also wrote that it's not just carbon dioxide causing all this trouble. There are other greenhouse gases, such as methane, which partly comes from cows belching, and nitrous oxides, as well as water vapour. 
And Chris says that if there was a big problem with this conclusion, at this point, we would know because scientists have been trying to poke holes in it for years. So every scientist out there is banging on this infrastructure of knowledge as hard as he or she can to find what's wrong with it. And nobody's found a flaw. Everybody fine-tunes. But everybody's trying to find that big flaw that would make him or her famous. So this is why 97% or more of climate scientists agree that warming trends are caused by human activities. We are living in a world of increasing political polarization. When it comes to issues that affect all of us, like climate change, that divide has far-reaching consequences. We know that in the U.S., conservatives, politicians in particular, are more likely to be skeptical about climate change. In the case of the incoming Republican president and his chosen cabinet, that's an understatement. Conversely, Polling suggests that liberals, or progressive-minded people, are more willing to embrace the harsh truth of climate change and the need to act on it. This same conservative-liberal split applies in Canada, by the way. So how do we bridge the divide? New research offers some intriguing possibilities. What if our messages about action on climate change were better aligned with a person's ideological bent? Here to explain is Dr. Matthew Baldwin. He's a postdoctoral fellow in psychology at the Social Cognition Center at the University of Cologne in Germany. Dr. Baldwin, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much. Tell me about your study and how you framed climate change action for your participants. Psychologists have been talking about framing for a really long time, um, so we know that people are, are more likely to accept a message if accepting the message sort of allows them to express other beliefs or values that they have. And so we thought that um, liberals and conservatives sort of differ on the kinds of things they value. And um, we figured that if climate change messages were using a particular uh, way of, of speaking about the problem um, that either did or did not align with, with conservatives' um, sort of tendencies, then it might cause a sort of wall or a roadblock um, to allowing them to express things they may actually believe, but uh, may be more difficult uh, or there may be some psychological sort of conflict. So we started thinking um, and talking together, myself and my colleague, um, Dr. Yoris Lammers, about um, this tendency uh, for conservatives to sort of place inherent value in the past or focus on the past or use the past to sort of evaluate the way uh, the present is. Who are the participants? So we pre presented our study on Amazon MTurk and recruited um, American adults. Um, on average, they're about 35 years old. Um, they range in um, their political ideology. They are predominantly white, but um, there is some variability in, in race and ethnicity. And they're about half and half male, female. And what about their political affiliations? Yeah, so we made sure to collect um, as many liberals as we did conservatives. 
Um, sometimes we simply uh, uh, ask participants to to do the study without any instructions about their political affiliation. And then at the end of the study, we ask them to identify themselves. Well, give me an example of some of the messages that you were giving these people. Sure. Um, the message went something like this. Uh, you know, we've really made a lot of changes to the way that our Earth used to be. Um, land uh, land has really disappeared. Our, our air is more polluted and um, there's more traffic on the road. And then at the end of the statement, the crucial line was something like, we really should stop what we're doing and get back to the place that we were. Uh, we should bring back that uh, planet or Earth or or way things were, because um, that's how it's supposed to be. That would be a past focus message. Ah, um, bring bring back the good old days. Bring back the good old days. It's pretty uh, tried and true nostalgia. We, we kind of tried to um, to portray. Okay, so that's the message that looks backwards. What was yep. the one that looked forward? The forward-looking message is one you've probably heard. We th we think this is kind of the typical framing, which is something like um, there's increasing traffic on the road, our forests are disappearing, and, um, you know, the air is getting more and more polluted. So we really should stop what we're doing now or else it's just going to get to a place where uh, we can't handle it. You know, we owe it to future generations to to um, stop what's happening and really try to to uh, reverse these negative effects. Okay, so we've got uh, the good old days looking back. We've got the, uh, if we don't fix it now, the future's going to be grim. Right. Of the two <laughs> groups, the conservatives and the liberals, mm -hmm. who preferred which message? So liberals actually like both. Um, it seems like uh, liberals, when asked which message do you like, they do like the future-focused uh, message more, but when it comes to donations and actual climate change beliefs and um, uh, intentions to to act against climate change, both messages were effective. Um, conservatives, on the other hand, seem to like the past focus message more or they dislike the future focus message. And this was also reflected in their their donations and their beliefs. So the past focus message increased the amount that conservatives sort of accepted that climate change was real and that humans were causing it and uh, encouraged them to donate money. Oh, so donating was part of this study then? Yes. In a couple of the studies that we did, um, we offered participants some extra money for participating in the study, uh, about $2 extra, and um, gave them the opportunity to keep the money for themselves as a bonus or to donate some of that money to um, some charities that we presented to them. And what did you find? Uh, we found that the charities we had uh, decided were more past-focused, um, garnered more support from conservatives uh, than charities that were considered future-focused. Liberals gave about the same amount of money to both charities, but um, conservatives tended to favor the past-focused charities. So so just to make it clear here, you're, you're not saying that the conservatives were unwilling to donate money to the cause of climate change. It was just in the framing of it. If it was presented to them as something that restores the past, then they would donate as opposed to something that's more catastrophic looking at the future. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, the focus of our paper was not to point fingers. Obviously, um, we we focused on climate change and conservatives because that was a particular issue that we thought was relevant. But, um, you know, perhaps we could find similar sorts of um, framing uh, differences with uh, issues that liberals are sort of fundamental on. Uh, so the message is really that maybe conservatives and liberals actually believe the same kinds of things about climate change. Um, but because we've been talking about climate change in a certain way, um, it appears as though there's a divide. 
So why do you think this difference between the liberals and the conservatives uh, shows up? Uh, well, another study we have um, in the in the paper shows that uh, on average, many of the organizations um, that focus on climate change action are actually perceived to be future focused. Um, so it could be that um, the way that we talk about climate change in the media or in politics or just in conversation with friends focuses on the state of the future. So how might your study uh, change the way we approach topics like climate change to really promote action and get things done? Well, our study is just uh, carrying on a tradition in in psychology and uh, judgment and decision-making and attitude research that uh, essentially says uh, it's very important to market our um our messages to fit the audience that we're trying to speak to. So uh, we don't necessarily feel that it's manipulative um, to try and market the science behind climate change in a way that resonates with people. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, we, we think liberals and conservatives probably believe very similar things about climate change, um, but we should really take care to talk about the issue in a way that um, sort of respects the way that people on the other side of the aisle think about the world. You know, some people, they just won't understand, boy, just won't understand what they say. They give all your message, but I don't understand, boy, just won't understand what they say. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So speak out loud all the things you are proud of. If you love this coast, then keep it clean as it rolls, cause the way that it shines may just dwindle with time, as the changes it when you have worked with scientists in the past in trying to get them involved in activism, do you ever get any pushback on how um, science is supposed to be unbiased? I mean, is there a concern from some scientists that if they do become activists or join protests or movements, that their research could become sort of tainted by their activism or that maybe their activism might make them less attractive to hire in the future? Yeah, I think that's a concern that, that always comes up when you're talking about uh, science and advocacy. And, you know, I think there's sort of this this view that, you know, scientists almost, you know, need to sort of stay on the sidelines, so to speak, and, and not really engage in, 
in public policy discussions or in political discussions um, to sort of keep their their um, persona as a as an un, unbiased you know arbiter of facts. And I, not surprisingly, I disagree with that with that view. You know, I think we're all human beings. We all have biases. There's no such thing as as, a, as an unbiased scientist. The, the the power of science is not that us as scientists, as individuals, are unbiased. The power of science comes from the process of science and the peer review process, and um, our training. You know, we've been trained to be careful of our biases and analyze them and make sure they don't show up in our work. And so, that that is how the science itself ends up being unbiased, hopefully, you know, science, even science isn't perfect. Um, but we're, we're human beings and we, we have biases. Um, but I think we're also, we're also citizens. And I think it's, you know, absurd to suggest that scientists should somehow sit out of, of these important debates. And I think, you know, scientists more than anybody else need to be engaged in public debates. You know, we're the ones who are trained in, in science. We're the ones who, who fully understand and appreciate um, the role that science plays in our society and in our democracy and just how important it is that we're making decisions based on the best available information and how important it is that we have a, a citizenry who are well-informed and how essential that is for a healthy democracy. So we, we know all that and we appreciate all that. So I think we have a responsibility to stand up for these principles when we see them being abused. And I don't think that in any way, you know, takes away from from us as as scientists or or biases us in any way. So if you're a scientist or not a scientist and you can't show up at the march or you feel like for you it's too risky to do something like that, what are th- what are some other actions you can take to try and support or at least feel like you're doing something? Cuz that's of course one of the hardest things sometimes is that feeling of of helplessness if you feel like you can't participate overtly. One thing that I think is is so important is not not shying away from having um, challenging personal um, conversations about these issues. You know, I know often we, people joke about, you know, unfriending people on Facebook who post things they disagree with. And I think that's, that's the wrong approach. You know, we, we keep living in sort of more and more in sort of isolated media bubbles where we don't actually hear from people who have opposing viewpoints. And so I think it's important that we don't just um, tune out people who disagree with us. We actually start having conversations with them. So I know, you know, even myself, you know, after this election, I realized that that was something that I could do and I needed to do. So, you know, for example, when I see friends of mine on Facebook posting um, anti-vaccine posts, for example, you know, I used to just go and unfriend them. And now I actually take the time to, you know, find some information and respond back to them in, you know, as polite of a way as I can and try to actually engage them in a conversation on these controversial topics. And so I think that's, 
you know, that is something powerful that all of us can do in our daily lives. And realistically, as much as, you know, we like to go go to protests and do these sort of big displays, it's those those kind of conversations with, with real people in our lives that are what actually change people's minds and move issues forward. I think as well, which you mentioned before was a big part of the 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 rally that was held in in Canada is that don't I think scientists sometimes are worried about uh, creating a narrative or appealing to emotion or appealing to something personal inside people because we just present a lot of facts. I know I tend to do this sometimes, you know, I present someone with a whole bunch of facts and maybe in those moments what's needed is something a bit more personal or a, a story that you can tell or some way that something's affecting you personally. So I feel sometimes that especially especially with people who are scientists and academics that don't always necessarily reach right for the stats and the the straight yeah. up facts. Sometimes you need to mix those in with with a story that you can tell or an appeal that is a bit more personal in order for it to reach people because it's it's very easy to just kind of scoff at facts. Sometimes especially these days it it seems yeah. like like facts don't always have the same kind of weight that they used to in the current climate. <laughs> well, when you have uh, the administration that runs the U.S. coming up with alternative facts, like clearly we are in a period of time where facts don't matter as much. And that, that is part of what is so alarming. Um, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, what I often say when I'm talking to scientists and researchers is, you know, we like to look at the evidence. So let's look at the evidence of how people make decisions and how to change people's minds. And there has been a ton of research done on this. Um, you know, really interesting books, like Don't Think of the Elephant, George Lakoff, and The Political Brain. Um, there's tons of research, really interesting research on how people um, come to conclusions on issues. And they don't, you know, they don't sit down and look at the facts and make a rational decision. As, as much as we would like to be believe it, humans are not rational beings. We make decisions based on emotions and values. And so as scientists, we need to learn that and come to terms with it and be okay with it. So often what, what we try to do and what I try to do at Evidence for Democracy is talk about evidence and science as values. You know, really, they, they are part of our values. And that's, that's okay. We can talk about them like that. I, I value science. I value evidence-based decision-making. These are things that I, that I care about. And so I think the more we learn to talk about science and evidence in an emotional, value-based way, the better we'll be able to, to resonate with people. Um, and I think, too, the more scientists you know, don't shy away from sharing their personal story, sharing their passion for their research, more, you know, the public will sort of learn to see scientists as, as people, because I think we haven't really touched on it, but that's, you know, a whole other part of what has led to our current situation is there's this sort of growing narrative of scientists as this other, you know, this sort of anti-elitist um, sentiment where, you know, the public has sort of been taught to distrust scientists. And I think the more the public sees, you know, really personal narratives of scientists and scientists really not being afraid to show the immense passion they have for their work, the more we'll be able to counteract that narrative.
Historically, no matter how deep our political divide, there have always been some things we could agree on, certainly if not policy, that at least a basic set of facts about science or math or medicine, empirical data that explains the world we live in and debate it. But today, even that is threatened in ways not seen since some argued that the earth was flat. Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said to one of his colleagues that he was entitled to his own opinions, but not his own facts. That doesn't seem to be true anymore. So what's a scientist to do when their basic set of proven assumptions are attacked, challenged, or ignored in the face of overwhelming evidence, be it climate change, vaccines, or data about our health? The answer may be running for office as the only alternative. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Shaughnessy Norton. She's a chemist, a cancer researcher, and the founder of the nationally recognized pro-science political action group 314 Action. She is one of the organizers of this weekend's upcoming March for Science in Washington that will assemble scientists from around the country to rally against the president's war on science. It is my pleasure to welcome Shaughnessy Norton to the program. Shaughnessy, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. First of all, tell us a little bit about 314 Action. What is it? How did it come to be? Well, I am, as you said, a chemist by training, and I ran for U.S. Congress myself. And uh, one of the observations I had was there's a real lack of people with scientific and technical backgrounds in Congress, but really at all levels of government. And I founded 314 Action to try to uh, help uh, increase those numbers. And one of my other observations was it can be very hard to break into politics when you don't come from a traditional political background. And so with 314, we're hoping to unite the scientific community uh, and encourage more members to run and get elected for, to office. Is there a danger inherent in this that by getting more scientists involved in the political process, that it will further cause science to be polarized by politics and, and have exactly the opposite effect that you would like it to have? Well, what I think is really dangerous is when we have a president that uh, denies uh, the importance of acting on climate change and has cabinet picks that are openly hostile to their uh, to the departments they're set to run. I think it's dangerous that we have politicians on, on the House Science Committee that are openly hostile to uh, the scientific consensus. And I think the way we push back at that is to claim the seat at the table and get elected, uh, because uh, what we're doing isn't working. What does it mean when we have people, even that are doctors inside the administration, people like Tom Price and, and, and Ben Carson, who are, are guilty of these same denials about some obvious facts of science. What do we make of that? What should we make of that? I guess that that shows the democratization of, uh, of ignorance. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I Talk a little bit about the the nature of scientists in general and, and the degree to which I think some people might assume that kind of the scientific temperament is, is antithetical for the rough-and-tumble world of politics. Well, uh, it is a rough and tumble world, and it is it is not for the thin skin. <laughs> but I I, uh, I I do think scientists bring a unique and valuable skill set uh, to governing and policy making. I think one of the things that's instilled in scientific training is 
you know, a collaborative approach, uh, an ability to interpret data and not be intimidated by it, as well as a fact-based approach to decision-making, which I think we could use a lot more of in, in government. Do you see this taking place and, and scientists getting involved in politics through the traditional party system, through the traditional party structure? Um, I mean, we are working with the uh, national organizations and introducing them to our candidates. But, you know, a lot of the people that we have been contacted by, I mean, we've had over 5,000 scientists this year put up their hands and say they are uh, ready to, to run for public office. Um, you know, a lot of them have not operated within the, the party structure. And when you um, haven't, uh, it can be a very confusing path to navigate. Um, and so that's part of what we're, we're trying to help with is, um, you know, to make those connections and, and to uh, educate them on these party structures that, you know, people might not otherwise know about. Talk a little bit about the issues that you think are of paramount importance to scientists, whatever their specialty, whatever their area of expertise, to scientists that might get involved in the political process. Well, I think first and foremost is seeing policy based on sound science. And, um, you know, that uh, isn't always the case. Um, and it can be very frustrating to a lot of folks. Uh, I think the you know, this proposed budget by the Trump administration with the cut to EPA, uh, as well as uh, the, the just draconian cuts to the National Institute of Health budget, uh, uh, has a lot of people terribly concerned. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about climate change and the importance of, of acting on that, um, uh, you know, and, and the fact that that essentially being ignored by the administration, um, has people really concerned. Do you think about or is there discussion about the fact that by the time something like this could really be effective to be up and running, have some people elected, engage in the kind of training that you were talking about before, that that the urgency of the need may pass at some point? Well, um, you know, when we're talking about issues like climate change, I mean, that, that really requires, uh, of course, we do need to be acting immediately, but it requires long-term thinking because it's, you know, it's long-term thinking about our, our energy policy as well as our environmental policy and national security. Um, so I, you know, I think that there is always going to be a role uh, for scientists being involved in electoral politics and um, I think increasingly that uh, scientists are, are recognizing that they, they need to go beyond just signing letters and, and, and signing petitions and actually step up and get involved, whether that is run for office themselves or uh, organize their community or, be, or even just uh, making science more visible and applicable in their, in their community. Um, there, there is a growing consensus that this is an important endeavor. Today is the science fair. Today is the science fair. Oh, they're coming by the hearts with their presentation boards. Today is the science fair. All the students in the first, second, and third grade. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm filling up the auditorium with the science.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, take part in Global Divestment Mobilization Week. That's May 5th through the 13th. During the height of the Keystone XL fight in 2012, I sat in a theater in Washington, D.C., along with hundreds of other climate change activists and concerned citizens, and heard 350.org founder Bill McKibben talk about climate change via divestment. Back then, the divestment movement was just getting started, and within a year, there were student-led divestment efforts happening on college campuses around the country and around the world. Since then, divestment mobilization has become a core strategy of the climate movement. With the National Spotlight on Science and Climate Change right now, 350.org has organized a week-long Global Divestment Mobilization Week, May 5th, through the 13th, on the heels of the People's Climate March. The last Global Divestment Day was two years ago, so it's more than time, perhaps the perfect time, to reinvigorate a movement that has taken off and grown substantially over recent years. As you've heard on this show and pretty much everywhere else, renewable energy is becoming more efficient and cost-effective every year. But to have a real chance at that future, we have to also keep fossil fuels in the ground, and we don't have time to wait for the market to fix things. We need to make change happen now, and Money seems to be the only thing that talks. On their website, the Divestment Week organizers wrote, quote, Now it's time to highlight the impacts of fossil fuels on our planet and to demand action that is rooted in the moral argument that investing in fossil fuels is not only a financial risk, but also risking the lives of human beings, unquote. During Global Divestment Mobilization Week, actions will take place around the globe to demand the following moral responses from governments, universities, religious organizations, cultural institutions, individuals, and others. One, the immediate freeze of any new investments in fossil fuel companies. Two, divestment from direct ownership and any commingled funds that include fossil fuel public equities and corporate bonds within five years. And three, cutting of sponsorship ties with fossil fuel companies. Visit globaldivestmentmobilization.org to learn more and find actions near you. If there isn't an action in your area, the site offers ideas and resources to organize one of your own. You can also follow the movement at GoFossilFree on Twitter and by checking out and using the official global hashtag, FossilFree. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if saving the planet before it's too late is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about taking part in the Global Divestment Mobilization Week May 5th through 13th via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. New reports indicate that Donald Trump has issued a gag order on certain scientific agencies of government. Now, this gag order has to do with the EPA and the type of climate news and data they wish to publish online. Now, according to Reuters, uh, Trump ordered the EPA to remove its climate change pages. 
Okay, so let me read that again. According to Reuters, a very reputable news organization, Trump, Donald Trump himself, ordered the EPA to remove its climate change papers. Okay, so essentially telling the EPA to not share taxpayer-funded data and studies with the American people because it goes against his own agenda of drilling for more and more oil. Now, if you don't care about drilling for more and more oil and you think that's great, all right, interesting. Um, but you should also keep in mind that the president should not be telling scientists what they can and cannot publish and share with the American people. So if you weren't afraid of science or data or information, you would say publish away. So for example, I believe climate change is real. Do I believe that because God told me or I have a personal proclivity towards anything? No, I believe that because almost all the scientists in the world say that it is and they have the data to back it up. Now, if you were to find data that said, oh no, actually 97% of the world scientists have flipped and now they say climate change isn't happening, I would want to see that data because I don't want to be an idiot and go and have opinions that are not backed up by data. And I want to make sure that we fight for the right laws. So for example, if climate change wasn't happening, then I, you know, there may be other reasons to, to be against drilling for oil, but there'd be less reasons. And yeah. so that would, that would maybe change my opinion on that, right? If the fracking isn't causing earthquakes, well, then you know, it's not as bad, right? If it doesn't release methane, it's not as bad. You know why we're open to facts? Because we're rational human beings, right. and we think that we're on the right side of the debate. If you think you're on the wrong side of the debate, you're like, don't, don't, don't show anybody facts. Don't show them the facts because I know that if they see the facts, they won't agree with me. Right. Look, when we were in grade school, we heard the cheesy phrase over and over again, um, and maybe some of us rolled our eyes, maybe some of us took it seriously, but knowledge is power is real, right? There's, there's a reality to that because once you have information, once you have facts on your side, then you fight those in power who want to take advantage of you, who want to violate your rights, who want to destroy your resources. He doesn't want that information out there. They want to dismantle education and make it only available to those who are already rich and wealthy. Okay, so. The masses won't get the privilege of getting educated, which, by the way, I don't think is a privilege. I think is a human right. And then at the same time, they stop scientists from publishing crucial data that empowers us to make smart choices about our future. So it's it's beyond scary. So, so now we're clear, though. Uh, we know who's in favor of science and who's against it. So. If you're a conservative and you love Donald Trump, okay, you're in the anti-science crowd, no problem. Just own up to it. You don't want science published because you're afraid of facts. And so you're part of the party of ignorance. Now that doesn't mean you're less intelligent, although that might be the case. There might be other reasons, though. Just because you're a Republican, of course, doesn't mean you're less intelligent. You could be very intelligent and would like to just you know, pay lower taxes so you know you keep more of your money. Uh, or uh, you know, you have certain foreign policy issues, whatever it might be. I get it. But if you say, hey, I like the Republicans because of this, then you're proudly part of the party of ignorance. And but even if you vote for the Republicans and you don't like that they're doing this, well, you own it, right? This is part of what you get when you vote for Republicans. They block science. They're the party that wants to keep you ignorant. That's you. Yeah. Um, 
Another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that uh, Trump's administration has decided to freeze funds related to the EPA and any new research or projects that they wish to do in the future. If they do want to publish something, and this is according to uh, a transition advisor uh, who is basically looking over the EPA transition, uh, if they do want to publish anything, it will have to be okayed by the Trump administration. In other words, it will have to be literally politically correct. It doesn't matter if it's scientifically correct or factually correct. In order for it to be published, it, there is one last layer. They have to make sure it is politically correct before it, it gets published. So, uh, and if it doesn't match the Trump politics on drilling, and and if it shows that it actually hurts the earth, hurts our citizens, and uh, and and causes grave damage, well, you might be factually correct, but you weren't politically correct. That is not the correct political position to have. So you will not be published. Yeah. Look, I was listening to an interview on NPR today that I thought was really interesting because. Look, one promise that Trump has made is that he's going to bring back jobs. And Americans will continue fighting for scraps, and they'll maybe get some manufacturing jobs back, uh, maybe more uh, jobs in drilling and oil and coal and things like that. Um, and the reason why I say fighting for scraps is because the, a lot of these jobs are dangerous. Uh, a lot of these jobs wouldn't pay enough for them to live the lives that they want to live, right? So we're fighting for scraps. But keep in mind, if if we actually focused our energy on something like renewable energy, right? If we focused our energy on wind and solar, uh, hydropower, do you know how many jobs that would create? That would be a new industry that would actually benefit society both environmentally and jobs-wise. In fact, in the Justice Democrats platform, we say that we should be number one in renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're not winning with renewable energy. Actually, China is beating us considerably when it comes to renewable because energy. Because their leaders are smart, and our leader right now is a dummy. And so that's why we're losing to China and Germany and all these other countries in renewable energy. We think we could be number one. Why would we cede uh, renewable or sustainable energy to any other country? What, we don't have enough sun? Have you ever been to Vegas? Have you ever been to New Mexico? Have you ever been to so many parts of this country? We don't have enough wind? Have you ever been to Chicago? And we're not number one in sustainable energy? You know, well, Justice Democrats say that we can create jobs and be number one in that industry. And I guess uh, Republicans say, no, we, sh we should be number eight or number 12 because they don't believe in America. We just heard clips today starting with Neil deGrasse Tyson describing the state of science in America. Science Versus told the history of how we know that humans are driving climate change. Quirks and Quarks discussed the importance of shaping a discussion about climate change to the audience you're speaking to. Science for the People explained the need for scientists to get political. Who, What, Why looked into 314 Action and the movement to recruit and support scientists to run for office. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks discuss the political correctness of the Trump administration and the gagging of science. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Georgia here, as opposed to uh, Alan from Connecticut. Uh, big fan. I wanted to clarify something uh, from the episode on abortion. 
Not all anti-choice activists and not all anti-choice legislators think that women should go to jail or be punished for having an abortion. For example, uh, Louisiana has a post-Roe activation law. Um, that means that the law only goes into effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned. But anyway, that law like straight up outlaws abortion. And there are huge fines and jail time for women who perform abortions. But the law also says, um, uh, quote, nothing in this section may be construed to subject the pregnant mother upon whom any abortion is performed or attempted to any criminal conviction and penalty, end quote. And there are a lot of people on the anti-choice side who take that position. Now, I, I'm 100% pro-choice. Um, I'm not saying that Louisiana's law is right, it's not. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who would like the U.S. to be like uh, Chile when it comes to abortion law, but that's not the uniform anti-choice position. And I think it's important to accurately represent the other side's argument. Anyway, uh, great show and keep up the good work. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Dale from Minneapolis, and I really enjoyed your episode about Buddhist economics. And I wanted to tie that in to um, fundamental paradigm shift that everyone on the progressive left is really actually working for. So, got a couple of bullet points here. Less desire, less suffering. Yeah, very important uh, for us to uh, realize that the world is impermanent and uh, to have less desire to uh, divide ourselves and more desire to realize that everything is one thing and then we can actually really reach people and we can talk to them and then we can change the world and you know we have to uh take a more buddhist approach in our leftist revolution and realize that people are inherently good and as jen Huger and the young turks love to point out uh two-thirds of Americans, you know, well, left in the polls, taken by the MSM. I hope the show keeps going strong. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, all of the news this week has been about Trump's 100 days, which is an arbitrary number, obviously, but it's, it's just a time that we can use to reflect. So we have the, uh, you know, People's Climate March happening on the 100th day, and all the news is talking about what a fucking clown show the administration has been uh, for the last several months. And the news today is that Trump realized that the job is harder than he thought it would be, and it's harder than his old life. Surprise, surprise. But what I want to talk about is 100 days of activism. As the loyal opposition, our job has been to resist what's happening in the Trump administration, try to reshape the left and the Democrats or form a third party or whatever it is you may be trying to do uh, politically to react to the Trump and the ascendancy of the right and try to uh, you know fight back from that. And a lot of people uh, came in 
to activism fresh because they really hadn't paid attention before. Uh, other people had been paying attention before, but had a renewed sense of urgency to get involved. And so there's a lot of energy being uh, expended in these first several months. And there's the, always the concern that you can burn out. You know, it's, it's like the people who sign up for gym memberships in January and then, you know, by March are completely slacking off. You don't want that to happen for the sake of your health, and you don't want that to happen for the sake of the political health of the country. So today, I just wanted to read a little bit to you, sort of a, just an edited version of an article I, I find helpful. It's called How to Sustain Your Activism. This is uh, published on the Greater Good Science Center website. They have all sorts of good advice on keeping a uh, good mentals, you know, sense of well-being in in all kinds of different ways. And uh and and so this is just specifically when dealing with politics, how to do that in a way that helps you not burn out, frankly. And so this article is broken down into three sections. Number 1, come alive. I'll explain what that means. Number two, connect the basic idea that it is good and healthy and makes us happier to connect with other people. And number three is care, meaning that our activism has to come from a place of care rather than from a place of anger. Care is sustainable. Anger burns too hot and too brightly, uh, you know, to, to be sustainable. So, um, so to start, come alive. I'll, I'll just start reading and maybe comment along the way. Recent research shows how many people are motivated by the pursuit of meaning, and for many of them, activism is the most intensely meaningful work they'll ever take on. It's awakened by a sense of being called to do the work, and it is sustained by coming alive with the feeling of finding meaning in one's work. Boggs, one of the researchers, teaches that activism means seeing that we are the leaders and that we can be the change we want to see in the world. That doesn't mean we take on the entire burden of change to ourselves. It means that we find a role to play. There are many different forms of activism, and each person can contribute according to their abilities, thinking globally, and acting locally. End quote. And what this reminds me of is actually my answer to the question that I get most often about doing this show, for all of the years I've been doing this show, the number one question I get is, how do you stay so engaged in politics without burning out? And for a long time, I didn't know the answer. I just thought, well, I don't know. I, I just kind of do it and it seems okay. And then I, finally, I realized along the way that the show, doing the show, is both the source of and the answer to all of the frustrations that come along with staying engaged in politics. So, of course, I since I do the show, I have to stay super engaged. That's frustrating and, and bad for one's mental health. But the act of doing the show is my activism, as that paragraph is, is describing, finding meaning in one's work, you know, feeling called to do the work is what makes it sustainable. So I've taken to, you know, describing this sort of in a metaphor that you can consume news like a bucket consumes water, but then you end up overflowing every time without fail. That's what's going to happen. Activism is like allowing water to run through a filter. You stay engaged. You take action on that flow of information, politics, and news and events 
but you never overflow. You become, you know, part of the process, but you allow it to, you know, flow through you in a way. And, and that's the best I can come up with to describe how you can not become overwhelmed because you are taking action on what you're hearing. Uh, that actually is a relief of frustration. So you shouldn't think of getting involved or, you know, becoming active as a, a step beyond just paying attention and that like, well, I find it really frustrating to pay attention or it's hard to pay attention and not become overwhelmed. But if I became an activist and I, or I got more involved, well, then I would just find it more frustrating or even harder to deal with. And that's actually not the case. That's the reverse. Getting active is the antidote to becoming overwhelmed, which sort of leads to number two in this article, connect. The article reads, the research to date says that social connection is the single biggest predictor of personal happiness, and activism is nothing without a sense of connection. It is sustained by uniting with others in the struggle, reminding us that we are not alone. Indeed, studies also suggest that our feelings of connection don't just make us feel good, they make us do good acts. Connecting also means not abandoning the system, but instead seeing ourselves as part of it. Boggs reminds us that you cannot change any society unless you take responsibility for it, unless you see yourself as belonging to it and responsible for changing it. And I think that one speaks more for itself uh, than the first one, and I just have less to add. But again, whereas activism is the antidote to feeling overwhelmed, it is also uh, a, a pathway towards more connectedness and completely separated from politics and activism and anything like that. Humans just need connection. So it's already easy to understand why it's good and healthy to have friendships and connect with other people completely disconnected from politics. But when you add politics and activism to that mix, those relationships, those bonds, those connections you're making become even more meaningful because you're adding a sense of meaning to the actions you're taking. You know, you're not just hanging out or chatting or watching a show or going to a movie with a buddy or anything like that. You're taking the next step and doing something good and productive with your time, which feels good on every level. And then finally, the last section, care. Again, reading from the article, as psychologist Paul Ekman has argued, anger has a place in activism, but anger is not sustainable. Anger burns too hot for a lifetime. Bog saw tending gardens, caring for the self, and caring for others as nourishing activism. Those acts of care are what will carry us through our most difficult times as individuals and as a society. While activism requires courage to act boldly for social change, it also demands acceptance of what we can't change. We need patience and understanding that it's a long haul and we're not the first ones who have tried to change the world. Making a peaceful and just world is not a one-time event, but a sustained process tied to slow evolutionary change. Mindfulness practices can help us remain present in the moment, engaging in the struggle, and grateful for the opportunity to serve. So again, those were edited excerpts from this article. If you want to check out the whole thing for yourself, it's titled How to Sustain Your Activism from the Greater Good Science Center. And I would love to hear from you with your thoughts on all of this, the first hundred days, how you've felt about it, how you've started taking action, the frustrations you've had with taking action, the 
excitement and energy you've brought to it, the excitement and energy you've lost during the first 100 days, how you plan on dealing with the frustrations and uh, exhaustion that comes along with paying attention to politics in an era like this. Anything you have to share would be welcome. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Stories and one